His shall be the throne forever. We shall heir his people be. That don't get you excited. I don't know what will. Please open your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be all over the place this morning. You can start in Matthew 16. That gives you a fresh start. But I have a question for you as I begin this morning, and that is this. What, I'm not asking what biblical doctrines you would be willing to leave a church over. I'm asking, what doctrines would you be willing to lay down your life to defend? Course of church history, you'll find that being martyred over doctrinal issues was very, very common. There have been doctrines that former saints found so important, so biblical, so weighty, and so treasured that they would rather die than recant their position. We've seen Christians martyred for simply being a disciple of Jesus. We've seen Christians die over the issue of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The blood of many followers of Jesus was spilled over the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. However, it might surprise you to find out that one of the biggest reasons that Christians have died in the past 2,000 years centered around the issues of the ordinances. The issues of the ordinances. One such example that we, we might consider was an Anabaptist brother named Hans Brett. Brett came to Christ in his early 20s after growing up a Catholic where he was baptized as an infant. In obedience to the word of God, Hans Brett partook of believer's baptism upon his profession of faith. Because of a hatred of the biblical form of believer's baptism, Hans Brett was arrested on May 5th, 1576 for partaking in what his opponents called a second baptism. He was tortured in a castle for months as his captors exhorted him to recant his beliefs about baptism. However, under strong biblical conviction about believers' baptism, Hans Brett refused to recant. Therefore, on January 4, 1577, Hans was ordered to be burned at the stake. Yet before he was burned, friends, Hans was given what's called a a tongue screw. This involved the young Hans sticking out his tongue to have an iron clamp screwed to it. The executioner would then burn the end of the tongue so that it would swell so large that the clamp could not be taken off of the tongue. And this was done for the purpose of not allowing Hans Brett to be able to preach as he was being burned alive, which was so common for martyrs in church history past. Hans Brett was burned to ashes and only his iron tongue screw sat at the bottom of the ash heap. This was all because of Brett's convictions surrounding the doctrine of baptism. I don't know what your initial reaction is to such a story. Perhaps you think that such individuals were foolish for taking such strong Stances on these issues. Perhaps you might hear of such stories and ask yourself, Brian, is there something that I'm missing? Is there something that I'm missing? Are baptism and the Lord's Supper really that important? In fact, personally, I've known many people who would leave a church that practices believers' baptism to go to a Presbyterian church that baptizes baptizes babies because they don't believe really that the issue of baptism is really all that important. Well, as we continue on in our ecclesiology study, we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about the ordinances. About the ordinances. When I say ordinances, I mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we think about the ordinances we should think about things that have been ordained. That is, they have been set apart for a specific purpose. Perhaps when when you hear the word ordained in in our context, in church context, you think of elders or or you think of deacons that have have been ordained. When churches ordain an, an elder or a deacon, they are publicly 
acknowledging that they have been set apart. That's, that's what it means, set apart for a specific role. We can understand baptism and the Lord's Supper in the same way. We call them ordinances because they are two ceremonies that Jesus set apart for the church to practice. Each ordinance has a particular purpose. Each has something that the Lord Jesus Christ desires to express through His church and for His church. We are not free to alter the ordinances. We are not given freedom to ignore the ordinances. In fact, my main point is this, and it's simple if you're taking notes. The church is commanded to observe the ordinances in the way that Christ prescribed and for the purpose that Christ prescribed for his own glory. So if we're going to practice the ordinances in a way that honors the Lord, it is important that we turn to God's word to see what it has to tell us about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I will accomplish that by looking at the issue of baptism this week and spending next week discussing the Lord's Supper. I want us to understand what the issue of baptism this morning has to do with the issue of ecclesiology and how this issue is connected to the health, faithfulness, and witness of Community Bible Church. I'm excited to talk about baptism. You might know I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud Baptist. I grew up a Baptist. I went to a Southern Seminary. It's a Baptist seminary. And if, and if that wasn't enough, I named my kid Baptist. So I look forward to talking about baptism this morning. So let's, let's begin to look at what the Bible has to say about the issue of baptism. There are, there are things this morning that I want to see about baptism. Four things that I want us to see about baptism this morning. Point one, I want us to see the call for the church to baptize. See the call for the church to baptize. To begin this morning, I want to turn to a passage that, is, that has actually been mentioned quite a few times in, in our ecclesiology study. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13 through 19. It's been mentioned again a few times. Let's, let's look at it again this morning. Please follow along in Matthew 16, 13 through 19 as, as I read. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Now you might think that Matthew 16, 13 through 19 is an interesting place to, to begin a sermon about baptism. You're thinking that. However, I think that a, a proper understanding of these verses gives us a, a critical foundation for the congregation's role in baptism. In fact, you might be under the impression that baptism is a strictly individualistic act. Perhaps you might think, Brian, throughout these past few, few weeks, I've, I've understood this. I, I understand that the Christian walk as a whole is not individualistic, but surely baptism is, right? Surely baptism is just about my individual decision to be baptized. You see, such attitudes plague our modern understanding of baptism. One modern trend among evangelicals is what's called, is what's called a spontaneous baptism. 
It is a very popular trend in large megachurches in which the band plays music for half an hour and people decide to walk down the aisle and, and get baptized spontaneously. There is little, if any, counseling in regard to the person's reason they want to get baptized. The baptism effectively means whatever the person choosing to get baptized wants it to mean. The church leaders might ask, might ask, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins before dunking them? But typically, again, not every scenario, but typically, that's about it. Belief isn't defined. Sin isn't defined. Jesus isn't defined. All that matters is the number of people being dunked. If the individual says, I want to be baptized, that's all that matters. Most church leaders and most congregants simply see baptism as something that they observe. However, I want us to understand that every bit as much as an individual chooses to be baptized, the church is actively affirming that individual in their faith as they baptize the individual. I'm going to say that again because it's important. I want us to understand that every bit as much as an individual chooses to be baptized, the church is actively affirming that individual in their faith as they baptize the individual. So with, with that, let's, let's dive deeper into Matthew 16, 13 through 19. In these verses, we see that Jesus questions his disciples as to who the crowd say that Jesus is. The question is, is meant to highlight two things. First, is, it's meant to highlight those on the outside. And as, as the disciples provide their answer to the question, it is clear that those on the outside are marked by a lack of understanding and belief in who Jesus really is. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world. They see Jesus as just another teacher. They see Jesus as, as just another prophet. However, Jesus makes another distinction in, in Matthew 16, 15. Jesus asks his disciples this question. He says, okay, but who do you all say that I am? Who do you all say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, he replies this. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Peter saw Jesus for who he really is. Jesus is, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is God in the flesh who came to rule in the, and reign. He is not just another prophet, but He is the one true final prophet. He doesn't just speak the Word of God. He is the Word of God made manifest. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. This is who we worship, church. Jesus tells Peter this. He says, you don't see me for who I am because you have extra good eyesight. You don't have extra special discernment. You're not smarter than the rest. No, you see me for who I am because God has sovereignly and graciously revealed this truth to you, Peter. And then Jesus says something so glorious, so profound, and so encouraging. He calls Peter by name and he tells him that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can we just, real quick, in the midst of our ecclesiology study, can we just glory in that truth for a moment, church? That Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Jesus is going to build his church. He will build it. I'm not building it. You're not building it. Jesus is building it. My sermons aren't building it. Your hospitality isn't building it. Jesus is building it. Our, our facility isn't building it. Our programs aren't building it. Jesus is building it. Jesus is building his church and nothing can stop him. Our hypocrisy can't stop it. Our lack of obedience can't stop it. Our, our faulty doctrine can't stop it. Corrupt governments can't stop it. COVID can't stop it. Disunity can't stop it. Persecution can't stop it. As Jesus says, even the gates of hell itself 
cannot stop Christ from building his church. Jesus will build his church. This precious truth should cure us from any ounce of self-sufficiency. It should cure us from any and all discouragement that we may have with the church. It should produce a deep peace and a godly contentment knowing this, that Christ will accomplish his purposes. It should produce vigor, perseverance, endurance, and godly ambition knowing that being a part of the church is the one thing that we know in this entire world will not fail. Jesus, friends, will build his church. The question is, how will he build it? How will he build it? Well, in verse 18, Jesus gives us the answer. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. If there was ever a verse in the Bible that has done more damage throughout church history, I don't know what it is other than this one. See, the Catholic Church believes that this verse established Peter as the first pope. However, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, while it is not evident in the English, Jesus is using and emphasizing specific words to make a theological point here. In Greek, the word for Peter, which is Petros, and the word for rock, which is Petra, are almost identical. Jesus is making the point that he will build his church upon professors, professing, understand? He will build his church upon professors such as Peter, professing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what we call a Christian. As Protestant believers, we shouldn't shy away from the Peter aspect of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus definitely has Peter in mind in these verses, but not to highlight him as a pope, but as a fellow professor like you or like me or like any other Christian throughout church history. Jesus will build his church upon professors making the profession that Jesus is Lord. And in verse 19, upon Peter making that profession, Jesus, again, he says something extremely important. He tells this professor, he tells this, this Christian, this one who is a part of the body of Christ, that I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, now Jesus, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't give Peter and the rest of the disciples a set of physical keys that somehow locked some door to the kingdom. We know that entrance into the kingdom of God is marked only by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet these keys of the kingdom were, were used for binding and loosing. They did serve a purpose. In fact, there seems to be a connection between the wielding of these keys on earth and what is actually a heavenly reality. Interesting enough, we, we can't d divorce the, these phrases here from, from another popular passage, one that, that we talked a bit about last week. We, we see the same phrase used in the passage of church discipline just a few chapters uh, later in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. In Matthew 18, we, we see this idea of binding and loosing. But it is spoken of in the context of approaching a fellow brother or sister about their sin. If the brother does not repent after being approached by the church as a whole, the church is called to treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, the church is no longer affirming this individual salvation because of their lack of repentance. You hear that? And one might say, I don't care if a body of believers doesn't think I'm saved. That's only between me and Jesus. Well, friends, while, while an individual or a church body can never declare with certainty that someone is actually saved, Jesus does seem to indicate in Matthew 18 that the action of the church 
excommunicating someone when, and I'll, and I'll stress this, when done biblically, most often says volumes about the state of that person's soul. If a healthy local church is treating you as an unbeliever, you should probably take note and not just act as if you're some martyr, the last line of defense, or a bastion for the truth. Jesus says that the earthly action of the church in excommunicating the individual, as well as the action of the church recognizing that individual's repentance, in other words, that individual is demonstrating the fruit of repentance, which is what it means to be a Christian, is intended to show a heavenly reality. If that is what utilizing the keys to the kingdom looks like in Matthew 18, in binding and loosing, and no, by, by no longer affirming one's faith, what does it look like back in Matthew 16? Well, I believe that Matthew 16 is speaking about the initial affirmation of a believer by the local church. The church binds and looses as they affirm a new believer in their faith. As Jesus affirms Peter in his faith, he tells Peter that he would build his church. And giving the church the keys to the kingdom, Jesus is calling us, Community Bible Church, to share the gospel and affirm professing Christians in their faith. That's what we're called to do. Now at this point, you might be asking, what on earth does this have to do with baptism? That's a good question. Baptism, friends, is the way that a local church affirms a believer in their faith. Baptism is the way that a local church affirms a believer in their faith. According to the Bible, your faith is not affirmed by walking an aisle, raising a hand, praying a prayer, signing a commitment card, attending a confirmation class, or receiving some sort of certificate. No. Baptism is the way that a local church affirms a believer in their faith. Now your next question might be, Brian, this passage says nothing about baptism. Where do you see that baptism is the way a local church affirms a believer in their faith? It's also a good question. In the Gospel of Matthew, we know this. We know that Jesus is ultimately put to death. But he rises from the grave on the third day, defeating sin and death once and for all. He appears to his disciples for 40 days and then ascends to the throne of heaven where he now sits at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning. However, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives his disciples a mission that, that we call the Great Commission. We see this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus calls his disciples to go and to make disciples of all nations. They were to go and share the good news of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. They were to teach disciples to obey the word of God. They were also commanded to baptize these individuals in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so how did the disciples respond? Did they understand their instructions? Was their commission by Jesus too vague? Well, we, we need only look to the book of Acts to see that once they were empowered by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, the disciples got to work immediately. They preached the gospel, called for people to put their faith in Jesus, and what did they do? They baptized people who trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. They did exactly what Jesus called them to do. For instance, in Acts 2, 14 through 41, as we see Peter preach his first sermon on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit moves in such a way that those who were present heard the gospel, recognized their, their need for salvation, and, and they said this, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. 
And what we see there, we see there were 3,000 souls who professed faith by being baptized in the name of Jesus. In Acts 8, we see Philip preach the gospel in Samaria where hordes of people repent and believe in Christ and profess their faith by what? By being baptized. In Acts 9, 1 through 19, the Lord saves a man named Saul who is ravaging and persecuting the early church. As Jesus reveals himself to Saul, Saul responds in repentance and faith. And what happens? He gets baptized. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter share the gospel with a group of Gentiles. In case you think that baptism was just for the Jews, keep reading. He shares the gospel with a group of Gentiles who would trust in Christ and respond by being baptized, brothers and sisters. I could go on and on and on and on in the book of Acts. This is what the church did. They shared the gospel and baptized believers. Notice, as you read the book of Acts, the church did not baptize babies. There is, there is zero, zero scriptural evidence or biblical precedence for the baptizing of babies. Not one scenario, not one verse. It is a completely useless practice that is foreign to the pages of Scripture. I know many well-intended, intelligent, godly theologians that I respect that believe in infant baptism. However, what they lack in this area is a single verse that explicitly calls us to baptize babies. And this isn't even a matter of opinion. This is a matter of fact. I challenge you to read any paedo-baptist theologian on the subject and probably the very first thing they're going to say in the very first chapter of their book is going to be this. You will not explicitly find a verse in the Bible telling you to baptize babies. And yes, that includes R.C. Sproul. And yes, that includes Doug Wilson, among other prominent Presbyterians. Not only did they not baptize babies, but the early church didn't baptize people who were just caught up in emotion. They didn't baptize people who had already been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they certainly didn't baptize unbelievers. They baptized believers who repented and trusted in Christ. If we are to fulfill the Great Commission, it involves the local church making disciples. It involves the local church teaching. It involves the local church affirming believers in their faith through baptism. If we as a church, are to be involved in affirming others in their faith. Let me ask you this from an application standpoint. What does this look like? Practically speaking, it means this, that we need to be involved in the lives of the people that are being discipled in our church. We need to ask heart-probing questions about Jesus. We need to make sure that they understand the gospel. We need to patiently endure as they ask difficult questions. We need to look at their lives and see if there's any evidence of repentance, a brokenness over sin, and a true desire to follow and worship Jesus Christ as Lord. If we, indeed, are essentially representing heavenly realities by wielding the keys to the kingdom and affirming someone in their faith through baptism, church, listen, we better take this job seriously. We as a church are declaring something when we baptize someone. We're declaring corporately that we believe this person, based on their profession of faith and desire to follow Jesus Christ, is a Christian. It is every bit as much a decision of the church to baptize that person as it is a decision of the professing Christian who desires to be baptized. Point two. I want us to see what baptism represents. I want us to see what baptism represents. The next passage of Scripture I would like to look at is Romans 6, 3 through 11. Romans 6, verses 3 through 11. In Romans 6, 3 through 11, we read, do you, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here in Romans 6, Paul gives an explicit, an explicit picture, friends, of, of what baptism represents. In verses 3 through 4, Paul speaks of the reality that those who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So listen, when we, when we baptize church, we fully submerge them underwater. We fully submerge them. We, 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 we don't we don't sprinkle them. Sprinkling them does not give a picture, really, of what baptism represents. We baptize like Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3. Jesus got into the water. Jesus physically emerged from the water. You see, this is something, this isn't just some small detail. This is important for us to recognize, because when we fully submerge that individual in the water, they're, they're, they're being put down into the water, we are highlighting that the individual being baptized is identifying with Jesus in his death. This is what happens in salvation. Becoming a Christian is not just adding a little bit of Jesus to your life. We aren't just saying, I want to be a Christian because mommy and daddy are a Christian. I want, to, I want to kind of follow Jesus as a safety net so just so I don't go to hell. I want to be a Christian because all of my other friends in the youth group are Christians. We must understand that becoming a Christian means that we are becoming a totally new person. We are a new creation. The old person according to Scripture, has died. Died. We are dying to our old way of life as an enemy of God. We are dying to our old selves who were slaves to sin. Every bit as much as Christ literally died, as we put our faith in Christ, we identify with Christ in His death. We trust in his death alone to make atonement for our sins. Our sins have, have been paid for. We have been made clean through his death. We are as white as snow if we are in Christ. In that moment, our lives change for eternity as our old self, hear me, it literally dies. Baptism represents this. Baptism represents death to sin. However, baptism doesn't just represent death. As a believer is baptized, they aren't simply identifying in Christ's death. After we submerge the believer in the water, we bring them up out of the water. Said more explicitly, we lower them into the water for the purpose of bringing them up out of the water. This is what Paul speaks of in verse 4. He says, we were buried with Christ in order that, you can underline that, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We don't just identify with Christ in his death. We identify with Christ in his resurrection. This is what it means, friends, to be a Christian. There's, there, there's a reason we don't hold someone down in the water when we baptize them. We don't hold them down. They, 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 they come up and they come right back out. 
That the death is, is, is not what we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection. Coming out of the water is a physical representation of a spiritual reality that has happened to us as a result of coming to Christ. We were once dead in our sins. Now we are dead to our sins. We were once dead to Christ. We are now alive in Christ. We are new creations raised to walk in the newness of life. And I want us to understand that reality for a moment, this picture of of baptism, because this is typically when we think of baptism, our our view is this, that it's just about dead and alive. But I want us to understand something else, that that, that baptism doesn't just represent a one-time reality of being dead and now alive. It represents the active walking from that time forward in newness of life based upon our new reality of life in Christ. Follow me, church. In verses 6 through 7, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, Christ doesn't just save you just so that you can go to heaven one day when you die. Christ will for you in this life is to represent his glory on earth by walking in the newness of life that he has allowed you to walk in through his death and his resurrection. Because of Christ's work on the cross, hear me, Christians, we are no longer slaves to sin. Amen. Do you get that? I mean, that reality is absolutely Amazing and frightening all at the same time. It's amazing in the sense that Christ has completely, once and for all, destroyed every bit of power that sin once held over me. All of it. Once, I could do nothing but sin. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, sin has has absolutely no power over me. And if you are in Christ, that is true over you. There is never a point in the Christian life where the devil made me do it, where demons made me do it, where my kids made me do it, where my wife made me do it, or sin was just too powerful for me to overcome. Never once in the Christian life. Yet, this is where it is so frightening. Because I still sin. I'm still tempted. And I succumb. Not not just once in a while, but every single day of my life, I sin. Why? Because I choose to. I choose to take my eyes off of Christ. I forget and or ignore who he has made me to be. It's it's not. It's not this. It's not that my situation is prone to be too much for me to handle. It is that my heart is prone to wander. It's prone to leave the God that I love. What is Paul's solution for Christians? But because of their relationship with Christ, sin has been put to death. He says this, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. You must. Circle it, underline it. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. It is not optional, church. We must take up our cross daily and follow Christ. Walking in newness of life is a life of continual dependence on Christ's work on the cross. It is a life of continual remembrance of what Christ accomplished for us. It is remembering who we are in Christ. It is the daily desire and commitment to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then Paul also highlights this. He highlights another glorious reality that baptism represents in verse 8. If we have died with Christ... We will live with him. Our bodies will die. 
yet we are not destined to eternal death. We will live with Christ, church. It's not such a glorious truth as this, like, water to the soul in this desert of life. This life for the Christian is as bad as it gets. Those of us who are in Christ will live with him for eternity. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's life, Paul's hope, listen, godly Paul, Paul's hope was not in this life at all. At all. Paul knew that our ultimate hope, joy, peace, and prize is still to come with Christ at at the resurrection from the dead. What a glorious day that will be. Friends, this is what baptism represents. It represents our true identity, our dead identity to sin in Christ, our new life in Christ, our daily walking with Christ. Point three, I want us to see what baptism produces. I want us to see what baptism produces. We've seen the call for the church to baptize Christians. We've seen what baptism represents. However, I want us also to see what what baptism produces. Specifically, I want to argue that baptism produces church members. Baptism produces church members. Now, it must be said, in case you need me to say it, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. I'll focus on that more in a moment. When someone comes to faith, water baptized or not, they are a part of the church universal. They're a part of the body of Christ. One might think of the thief that died next to Christ. He had no chance to get baptized, do any good deeds, or bear any long-term fruit. Yet, he professed faith in Christ, and Jesus said that in a few short moments that that thief would be with Jesus in paradise. In other words, that thief was indeed a part of the, the body of Christ. However, we shouldn't use the dying thief as a normative example of the Christian life. Instead, We should see that, in general, baptism is tied to becoming a part of the local church. We can look at the passage I mentioned earlier in Acts 2.41-47. Look at it. Typically, we put a giant break in what happens here. I would encourage you not to. Peter preaches, souls came to Christ, and in response, they were baptized as a public profession of faith. Again, skip any sort of break, paragraph break or section break. What happens? Luke notes in 241 that 3,000 souls were added that day. Added to what? What were they added to? Well, I think in the context and the following verses, it, it points to the fact that they were added to the local church. In that moment, as they were baptized, the result was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. They loved one another, they served one another, and the result was more and more people who came to know Christ. In other words, they were multiplying. What's that? What's that called? Is this not a picture of becoming a part of the local church? And we see many such examples throughout the pages of the book of Acts. Individuals are saved, baptized, and then they stick together, studying the word of God and ministering alongside each other. Yet, I think the concept of baptism producing church members is most explicitly taught in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. In fact, one might forget how much baptism is actually mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you might recall that the main issue at stake at the church in Corinth is what? The issue of unity. Paul's greatly discouraged to find out that there is a tremendous amount of disunity among the body there. Interesting enough, the first thought that comes to mind is for Paul as he appeals to this, this local body and exhorts them to be unified, first point is in their baptism. Paul doesn't ask if they are baptized. 
Paul doesn't even encourage them to be baptized. There was a blanket assumption that the members of the local body were baptized. And, 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 and Paul isn't talking about spirit baptism here either. That The text is rather explicit. Paul is talking about water baptism. Paul refers to their baptism in, in, in what it represents. At its core, Paul understands that the local church is to be the most unified place on the planet. Why? Because the local church is a group of people who have all identified in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They have collectively decided to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is made evident by their decision to be baptized. So Paul says this, he says, you're all being baptized in the name of Jesus. And being baptized, you're recognizing that you are saved by one name alone, Jesus. You follow one name alone, Jesus. You don't follow other traditions. You don't follow other people. You don't even follow other apostles. Your unity is found in your new collective identity in Christ. This is why Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. I'm glad. At this point, as the local church was being established, Paul's job was to preach the gospel, and it's the assumption that it was the local church that was doing the baptizing. Yet the overarching point here is that their collective unity was found in their identity, which is what their baptism represented. This actually brings us to the train of thought in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. In 1 Corinthians 11, one of, one of the indictments that Paul makes against the Corinthian church is that there was disunity at the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm, I'm going to exposit 1 Corinthians 11 next week. I hope you'll join us. But Paul's point is that the last thing that the Lord's sh Supper should result in is disunity. Unity, in fact, is best manifested among the church at the Lord's Supper. Yet, Paul grounds the unity of that body, that local body, that is found in the Lord's Supper and something else. A few paragraphs later. Baptism. One of the problems with the way that the Lord's Supper was being practiced among the Corinthian church was that there was no order. There was no humility. The culture among the people was that there existed important parts of the body and unimportant parts of the body. Important people were being highlighted and supposedly unimportant people were being left behind. Apparently, specific spiritual gifts were deemed as more important than others. However, Paul explains that it was the same spirit that every believer had that divvied out all their spiritual gifts for the edification of the body according to his sovereign will. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives an analogy as to how the church is to function. Paul explains that the church is a body. Now, I do believe that Paul is referring to the universal church in a sense, but more explicitly about the local church in this specific context in 1 Corinthians 12. The local church is a body that consists of many important members. When we speak of church members, we shouldn't think of, a, as has already been said, we shouldn't think of a member of a club or a member of a team. We should think of them as a member of the body, of our body. Every member of our individual, I'm talking about personally, yours, every member of our individual bodies are vital. They're vital. None of us would sit here and say, you know, I hear pretty good with just one ear. Just, just take, the, take the second one. I can hold things pretty well with four fingers. Just, just take the fifth. Just take your pick. No, we know this, friends, that, that all of our members are important. In fact, our physical individual bodies are made up of just many different individual members. They're vital. This is what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians. Our local church is just like a, a physical body. It is made up of people who are all vital members of that body. Yet, 
notice how Paul describes entrance into that local body in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were baptized into the body. Now personally, this is, this is my opinion. I, I think we're making a mistake if we just assume that Paul is just talking about spiritual baptism here. I don't think that Paul is making a distinction between the spiritual baptism of the Spirit and believers' water baptism. To Paul and to the early church and all throughout the Bible, Christians get baptized. To Paul and to the early church and throughout the Bible, all Christians received the Holy Spirit. Such realities were unanimously held in the Bible and in the early church. There wasn't some divorce between the two. It's not that you had to get baptized in order to receive the Spirit. It's not, it's not saying that. It's just, it's just unanimous. It's like faith and repentance. It's, you don't divorce the two. If you look at the text, it would be quite redundant to read Paul as saying, for in one Spirit we were baptized by the Spirit into one body and were made to drink of the Spirit. For instance, to drink of the Spirit is to receive the Holy Spirit and is to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Instead, I believe Paul is saying that water baptism is a picture of our oneness in Christ. It is a picture of our oneness in the Spirit. It is a picture of our unity. To be baptized is to be baptized into the body of Christ. It is identifying as a member of that local body in Christ Jesus. We must see that baptism is far greater than just our own individual profession of faith. Baptism also points to the fact that we are now a part of the professors, the body of Christ. We are members of his body. We have the Holy Spirit and have been gifted to serve the body. If you are considering baptism this morning, understand what you are signing up for. Friend, if you have been baptized, maybe you've been baptized for decades, can I ask you this? Does your life show commitment, unity, and love for the body of Christ? As a member of this local body, how are you utilizing your spiritual gifts to serve and nourish this local body? Not only that, but like the Corinthians, are you arrogantly assuming that you don't need certain members of the local body or even the local body as a whole? I'm not quite concerned if you choose to be a part of this local body, but if you're not, it is, as James said last week, it is absolutely vital that you are a part of some local body. Not only that, but I want to speak to a, a different group in the church this morning. We, we praise God. We praise God that a few of our younger people have professed faith in Christ. So to our, to our younger generation and even children in the room who are Christians, I want to encourage you to let you know that you are a vital part of our church. We, and I can, I can speak for myself, we are encouraged every time that you sing, pray, participate, serve, and attend. And while you are younger than the adults, the Bible tells you to not let anyone look down on you because of your youth. You were called to live as a good example before the rest of the church. And my prayer is that you would continue to take your walks with Christ very, very seriously. Among you and your friends and you and your, and your family, be quick to forgive one another. Be quick to pray for one another. Be quick to encourage one another in the word. Be quick to repent of your sins. Be quick to, to, to confess your sins. Be quick to walk in righteousness. And I, and I want to say on behalf of the rest of the church body that it is a joy to serve Jesus alongside of you. Amen? Finally, I want us to see the call to be baptized. I want you to see the call to be baptized. We've seen the call for the church to baptize believers. We've seen what baptism represents. We've seen what baptism produces. Now, I want to focus on the individual level for a moment. 
As we have already said many times throughout the sermon series, God's plan for those he saves is not for them to have a hidden individualistic faith. God's plan is to publicly demonstrate his glory and wisdom through the church. God's plan for you, if you are a Christian, hear me this, is to go public with your faith. To go public with your faith. In fact, the Bible commands you to do so. I don't want you to see this as some legalistic burden. I want you to see it as a way to honor King Jesus. This is one way that that our Lord and Savior, King Jesus, commands us. Hear me. Use that word very strongly. He commands us to worship him this way as Christians. I, I want you to see this if you're considering baptism. I want you to see that, the, that baptism in the Bible is very closely tied to being a Christian. It's, it's tied to what being a Christian is. L- l- listen, listen this morning to how strong some of the biblical language is. In, in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter writes this. He says that baptism now saves you. Not as a result, not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is Peter saying that the act of baptism saves you? No. In the context of 1 Peter 3, Peter points to the fact that Christ is the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Peter has already said in his epistle in in, in 1 Peter 1 that God is the one who sovereignly causes us to be born again. Our salvation is the result of the sovereign grace of God alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yet, hear me, the act of baptism is so tied to faith, so tied to faith, and our demonstration of it, that he doesn't separate the two. In other words, the Bible doesn't know anything of a Christian that would willingly choose to not be baptized. Just doesn't know of one. Being baptized is so in line with what it meant to be a Christian that Peter could use such strong language in 1 Peter 3. And Peter essentially says the same thing in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem when those who were convicted of their sins asked Peter what they should do. Peter says this, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, to believe was to get baptized. And to get baptized demonstrated belief. To be clear again, because I know someone out there will make the accusation, you are not saved by the process of baptism. 1151. If you're looking for a timestamp. However, baptism is a demonstration that you are saved. It is going public with your faith and desire to follow Jesus. So friend, Would you consider yourself a Christian? If so, have you gone public with your faith and been baptized? If not, I can only imagine a few reasons why you wouldn't. Five, quickly. First, perhaps you were ignorant of the command to go public with your faith in believer's baptism. You didn't see the command from Jesus, that Peter, Paul, and other apostles gave their lives to make sure was obeyed in the establishment of the early church and still applies to us today. Perhaps you had no clue what baptism represented or meant. Well, hopefully, today, things have been cleared up for you. If you, if you profess to be a Christian and now see the call to be baptized, I want to encourage you to walk in obedience. I don't care if you have been a Christian for decades. There's never been a better time to walk in obedience. Second, 
Perhaps you profess to be a Christian. However, you're scared or ashamed to get baptized. You don't want to be the center of attention. You don't want people looking at you. Perhaps you're ashamed of your past. You're afraid by going public with your faith that you will be called a hypocrite. You're afraid that people will judge you. Perhaps you're afraid for people to know that you've been a Christian for a really, really, really long time and you still haven't been baptized. Friend, I want to remind you that if you are in Christ, the Bible says this, that God has not given us a spirit of power, I'm sorry, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. You need not fear man. You need not fear ridicule. You need not fear your family. The only thing you need to fear is God. May I encourage you to courageously go public and walk in obedience to what Christ has called you to do today. Third, perhaps you profess to be a Christian. However, you just simply aren't going to be told what to do. You're just outwardly rebellious to the call to go public with your faith. You might ask, Who are you, Brian, to tell me that I haven't gone public with my faith? I go to church, I pray, I give money, I share pictures on Facebook of of scriptures. Isn't that enough? Friend, I would humbly ask you, have you gone public on your terms or on God's terms? Are you submitting to God or asking God to submit to you? If this describes you, I would call you to repent of your haughty rebellion towards God and joyfully submit to his call to go public in baptism. Fourth, perhaps you're waiting until your faith means a little more later in life. Perhaps you don't think that you're mature enough to get baptized. Perhaps you feel like you need to learn a little more about the Bible before you get baptized. I would encourage you with this thought. Baptism isn't meant to affirm mature faith. Baptism is meant to affirm the presence of faith at all. This, friends, is why we baptize children in our church. Do children have well-formed views on eschatology, the covenants, or the Levitical priesthood? No. Yet, they know this, that Jesus died to save them from their sins. Know this if this is you. No matter what point you are in your life today, your walk with Christ will always mean more the longer you walk with Christ than it does today. Don't delay any longer, dear Christian. Go public with your faith in baptism today. Finally, it is possible that you have chosen not to get baptized because you're not a Christian at all. It's possible. You might hesitate to get baptized because in your heart, you're not sure if you have even trusted in Christ as your Savior. You may have no desire to follow Christ. Your heart may love your sin and have no desire to repent. Perhaps you feel comfortable being around other Christians in this church because your friends and your family are here, yet deep inside you know that there's never been a point in which you have trusted in Christ for yourself. If that is you, I want you to know this, that God stands ready to save you today. And John John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10.13 says this, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter what you've done or how far you have run from God, because of the work of Christ on the cross, God stands ready to forgive you today should you trust in Him. I want to say this. On Easter Sunday, in a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism. And I want to invite you, if you've been a Christian for decades and have never been baptized, or even this morning you've trusted in Christ for the very first time, I'm going to invite you on Easter Sunday, to go public with your faith. Come talk to one of the elders if, should you choose to partake of that. As we close, 
For those of us who trust in Christ, now this has been a long sermon. I don't want this to simply be an informational session on baptism for you. I know that nearly all of you in this room have been baptized before. Some of you have been baptized many decades ago. If you are in Christ and have been baptized, I hope that this reminder of what baptism is stirs your soul. Knowing that everything spoken of this morning has been true of you already by God's grace. I want you to think of this morning like like going to a wedding. Kayla and I have been married for 15 incredible years now. And we have, we have been to quite a few weddings. And each time I go to a wedding, I'm reminded of the commitment that I made to my wife. I never walk away and say, oh, well, all the things that were spoken of this morning, that doesn't apply to me because I've already been married for 15 years As I listen to a preacher give a charge to the groom, there's always a renewed commitment to my role as a husband. There's there's also a renewed love for my wife as I hear what, what marriage represents. I'm reminded in that moment at a wedding how good marriage is. I'm reminded of what marriage is supposed to represent. I'm reminded of the goodness of God in giving me a wife. It's hard to sit at a wedding and just simply say, well, this is boring because I've already been married for a really, really, really long time. While most of us have trusted Christ and been baptized, I hope that we see our call to now share the gospel and affirm believers in their faith by baptizing them. I pray that we would take this call seriously and commit to knowing believers well enough to affirm them. I hope that we see what baptism represents It is a public display of a spiritual reality. It is telling the world that we have died to sin, but now live in Christ. May this reality remind us of our call to constantly put sin to death and walk in newness of life as Christ has empowered us to do. I hope that we see that baptism produces church members. I pray that we're reminded of the glorious reality that Christ has made us a part of his church in which he is displaying his wisdom through in all the world. May this reality stir our hearts and and renew our commitment to the local church. Finally, as we see the call to be baptized, may those of us who have been baptized thank God for his mercy in choosing to save sinners like us. May we daily acknowledge Christ before men with our lives and with our words. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given King Jesus, he commands nothing less. Amen.